This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. This is our second in a short series of discussions about the stories of Edna O'Brien. Today we discuss The Love Object. Edna O'Brien doesn't shy away from controversy. Her storied dust-ups with critics of her works of memoir and fiction have never deterred her from the truths she continues to tell about herself and others who represent her particular brand of unvarnished truth-telling. In writing stories about the vagaries of love, she has been as persistent. O'Brien has said, I am obsessed quite irrationally by the notion of love. It's an obsession, and I know it's very limiting. At the same time, it's what I feel the truest and most persistently about, and therefore, it's the thing I have to write about. And she assuredly does write about the obsession that can coexist with an ideal of love. In the story, The Love Object, the protagonist, Martha, seems conscious of this conflated idea of obsession and love. Even the title of the story conveys this awareness that we can treat the object of our affection as an object to be possessed. Things are further complicated when we see that the nature of Martha's relationship with a married man is less about love and more about a sexual relationship she's consumed by and that they manage when the man's wife and child are out of the country or when they can stay in her apartment. There's nothing much to element their union except the sex. Neither is forthcoming about their lives or even a sharing of their interior lives as part of their intimacy. Martha's obsession grows in dangerous ways. We see her move through a painful process of coming to desperation and then a hard-won discovery that helps us understand that her clinging to the obsession was driven perhaps by a feeling that it's better than not having anything else more meaningful from her paramour. In his essay, Cheever in Albania, Peter Orner describes a visit to Tirana, Albania, to work on a story set in this place. At a coffee shop, he observes two people animatedly discussing something. He does not speak the language, but their eyes and expressions spill the beans about what Orner surmises must be an illicit affair. I could have this all wrong, writes Orner. They could be talking about shampoo. Still, I'd bet the house I will never own that this has something to do with a juicy bit of local scandal. The woman goes on talking for some time. Her eyes are becoming wet with heightened anxiety. We're on the verge of revelation, continues Orner. But the thrill, the ecstasy, is never the story alone, but how the telling is wrapped. And that's what we see in Edna O'Brien's The Love Object. How the story comes to us from this master of the form is what brings us back to the story again and again. It's not the juicy details of a lurid affair that does it. It is the telling of the anatomy of an obsession, its sad trajectory toward an inevitable uncoupling. And that's the point then. That's how the story helps us understand in yet another way that every story is about loss. For the faithful and the not so. In the cold, glaring, unromantic light, we are all what Peter Orner calls the lonelies, reaching out for connection because nothing, as O'Brien writes, is a dreadful thing to hold on to. Welcome to another episode of The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner. Peter and I discuss The Love Object by Edna O'Brien. We're starting off with reading some brief excerpts to provide a little context. The Love Object 
He simply said my name. He said Martha. And once again, I could feel it happening. My legs trembled under the big white cloth and my head became fuzzy, though I was not drunk. It's how I fall in love. He sat opposite, the love object. Elderly, blue eyes, khaki hair. The hair was graying on the outside and he had spread the outer gray ribs across the width of his head as if to disguise the khaki, the way some men disguise a patch of baldness. He had what I call a very religious smile, an inner smile that came on and off, governed as it were by his private joy in what he heard or saw. A remark I made, the waiter removing the cold dinner plates that served as ornament and bringing warmed ones of a different design, the nylon curtain blowing inward and brushing my bare summer-ripened arm. It was the end of a warm London summer. For weeks I waited for a reply to my letter, but there was none. More than once I had my hand on the telephone, but something cautionary, a new sensation for me, in the back of my mind bade me to wait, to give him time, to let regret take change of his heart, to let him come of his own accord. And then I panicked. I thought that perhaps the letter had gone astray or had fallen into other hands. I'd posted it, of course, to the office in Lincoln's Inn where he worked. I wrote another. This time it was a formal note. And with it, I enclosed a postcard with the words yes and no. I asked if he had received my previous letter to kindly let me know by simply crossing out the word which did not apply on my card and send it back to me. It came back with the no crossed out, nothing else. So he had received my letter. I think I looked at the card for hours. I could not stop shaking to calm myself. I took several drinks. There was something so brutal about the card, but then you could say that I had asked for it by approaching the situation in that way. I took out the box with his ash in it and wept over it and both wanted to toss it out the window and preserve it forevermore. So let's start at the beginning. It opens with this idea that Martha is well aware that this is not love, that there's something really questionable or contradictory about even the wording love object. It's almost a, I don't know, a weird oxymoron even, and it takes away the, the emotional connection in the same way that um, I think that obsession or, or even addiction is really without the emotional connection to the, to the person or the thing. So whatever love is, and I don't know that it's passionate, though when you read about this story, you know, people write about how passionate the sex is. Um, I don't know. That, I think passionate is loaded, too, in the same way that love is. It doesn't serve purposes sometimes. I wish there were more words for some of these things. But she is equating love and sex. It, it reminded me of that Sherwood Anderson story, Seeds, where the girl who was a musician, she was all alone in the world. She's an orphan, and she has a physical disability. She lives in a boarding house full of men. Only men live there and the landlady. And the men make fun of the girl and they because she's like afraid of her own shadow. 
the men talk about her and they'll say inappropriate things like what that girl needs is a lover. So right. because she's so inexperienced about things, she hears that and says, oh, okay. And she starts doing these really weird things like leaving her door open when she's changing and the landlady's not having it. And so she tells her she's going to throw her out. So this other character that we know as the artist pretends that they're engaged just to save her from being thrown out. But he doesn't love her. He doesn't know her. Um, right. But then she's suddenly like Pepe Le Pew with him. You know, she, she's, all, she's all over it. And the thing is, she doesn't love him, but she loves the idea that somebody would do something like that for her. It's a very... It's a very strange story. It's a very interesting story. But it ha it's a story within a story, right? It's one of these frame stories. I always think about that story when I read this one because of that idea of how we play so fast and loose with, with the word love. You know, oh, I love French fries or I love, I love your shoes or I love your hair. And then it's the same word we use to, you know, describe our emotions for our children. I... I mean, I hear, I hear you, and I, I think it's. Uh, I mean, this is. I we said at the onset before we started recording. This is a hard story to talk about, mm -hmm. and I I've been wondering about like what, like what my students would think of this story, yeah, or what my friends would think of this story. In if they were talking about it in public, versus if they were just thinking about it privately. Oh, yeah. Without talking about it in public. Oh, for sure. Does that make any sense? Oh, yes. Like, I, I think, I think, like, you can't, you know, these people in the story are so ripe for judgment in a group setting. But when I read the story on my own, <laughs> and I've never spoken about this story to anybody. And there's, there's probably a reason for that. Because, I mean, this story... And, you know, I, I agree with you that it's not a love story. But I don't know if I, well, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but, or that, you know, that love is not this. But I don't know. I, 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 I think it's so, it's, it's, it's very tempting to think, you know, that, that this wasn't anything. And I, 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 I'm wondering if that's the case. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because partway through when I was talking before, I felt like I'm probably sounding pretty judgy about this, but I'm, it, but yeah. So I think I want to get out of the way, the idea of let's make sure when we walk into the story called the love object that we are really listening to what Martha is saying to us, which is, look at this guy. He is the love object. And this is how I fall in love. It's She has to qualify it for us. So, um, And, you know, I, I'm thinking now, who, who are the, you know, the police that say what we should define love as or what, what contexts we can use it in? Um, it might just be the, a shorthand way we can all understand um, the really complicated emotions of an obsessive, and I'll just say it, an obsessive love. 
I don't want to call it a crush. And it's not unrequited. Not really, you know, but, but it is obsessive. And then I, I was thinking, well, is all love a little bit obsessive? Um, so it's, yeah, and I hear what you're saying, like, to talk about this story, as you said, with, with your students, with my students, would be a very different thing. Would the story be, would be destroyed. I, I mean, destroyed. Oh, yes. You know, in, in a good in, way. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in a good way, but I, I would also say that they, you know, that, that a, a reader in 2021... You know, and, and this story is celebrated and you look up online and everybody loves this story. But again, put in a group setting, put it before a book group. And I, I you know, and I, I just I feel like it's 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 one of those stories that I mean, I'm guessing, you know, I've never tested out this theory, but that that, that might not fare so well that, that the characters themselves might not fare so well in a in a group judgmental setting. That's all, that's all I'm suggesting. But I also think like, you know, I think it's a fairly ordinary love story and, and or fairly ordinary obsession story or fairly ordinary, you know, she falls in love with him. He seems to fall in love with her, but you know, he cuts it off for reasons that are fairly conventional maybe that, you know, he's married and he's got a career and he, He's got these kids and he can't, you know, he can't sustain this. Mm -hmm. It's too much for him. But, but I also think like a lot of that's conjecture. I mean, we don't really, we don't really know what they talk about. You know, it's, it's a lot of it. There's a distance that we even saw in the doll that, that we're left to fill in a lot of the gaps here. I, I, I feel like these are, or at least my read on it right now. These are two fairly ordinary people caught up in something pretty ordinary and it ends in an ordinary way. <laughs> and, and yet the fact that she captures that, that, that happens to, to, to us all, you know, I, I think is part of what makes the story so significant, you know, in, in and is often mentioned as you know, one of Edna O'Brien's great stories. It's the title story of the new selected edition. It's, you know, it's out there a lot. I hear what you're saying. I, I think the average person, even if they could acknowledge the ordinariness of it, you know, these two people find each other and uh, spend time the way that they do, they would not, I think the average person would have a hard time um, doing anything else except, you know, except sort of judge it, except sort of judge what they're doing and judge. That's the, you know, it's so easy to moralize. And, and, and I guess I'm saying just 2021 is a lot different than when the story was written in 1968, 67, 69, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that a reader in 69 would be like, oh, cool, look, look at this woman spelling it out, how this really goes on. Now I think we think, Oh, well, you know, she's waiting at home. She's cooking for him. She's, you know, sewing his button. She's worrying about his bow tie. I mean, this is completely like who wants to read this subservience. Yeah. Right. And yet she's also somebody with her own career, a very successful career. Um, I think people would 
judge her. I think people would forget that and judge her for being, you know, subservient and the worst mother on the planet. Don't you think? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, to say nothing of, um, you know, a homewrecker, um, <laughs> that particular judgment. Um, but, you know, th- that honeymoon phase between them, you just know it's bound to happen because uh, that it's going to come to an end because there's really nothing holding the relationship together except for the physical, right? And on the, on one hand, she feels seen or attractive or, or whatever because without this and without him, well, she does have her career, but she she doesn't have very much. That Her sons are away at boarding school. She has this ex-husband who doesn't seem to be even into being in his children's lives. It means it just feels like this is a way for her. It's it's not an ideal way, but it's a way for her to feel like she's there. I don't know. It's and I guess I just think like I mean if if the story's great and if we're gonna argue that it is, then why? Why do you think this if you if you think the story's great why then? Because what you're describing doesn't sound great to me. I mean, just be just laying it out there. I'll, and so, and I, I've been thinking about this, like, how would I even explain this? So I'm, I'm asking you the same question that I would ask myself. So, you know, I like the whole anatomy. Oh, that's there's a weird lo- another weird loaded word. But the anatomy of an affair or the anatomy of an obsessive love. It makes me think also of like a the old movie um, Brief Encounter, which I've seen a thousand times. And these are, you know, two married people who meet at a train station and they they have like this emotional connection and they see each other once a week. They go to the movies and they act like a married couple and they're they're so happy and they're so absolutely tortured by the fact that they have to go home to their, you know, to their spouse. It's just a they're in love with two different people. It is an, an anatomy of, of an affair or of an obsessive love, or maybe if we want to be kind about it, a love. Okay. I think what she does with the story of this kind of the parry and the dodge of, of the relationship, I think it's, it mirrors relationships in general, the, the good and the bad, the times that, you know, the novelty wears off. And as she says about him at a certain point, you know, she starts to notice like, oh, you know, she starts to notice things like, um, let me see if I can find it real quick. I thought how ugly and pink his legs were, how repellent the shape of his body, which did not have anything in the way of a waist, how deceitful his eyes, which congratulated himself in the mirror when he succeeded in making a clumsy bow. I mean, she's ruthless. Uh, <laughs> And she's ruthless at a time when she's seen that he's very much a married man who doesn't know how to put on his talks because somebody always helped him with it. One of the other wives, you know, one of the wives. So, I, you know, I, the, the ups and the downs of it, the, the, the sort of all-consuming thoughts about him the next time they can be together, 
And the fact that he had said, well, we won't see each other that often. And then he calls her a couple days later. And that, I think for me, that's the moment when, when she's just lost it. Like, uh-oh, this is going to be bad for her. Uh, she's going to read way too much into that. And of course, that's what happens. The whole thing about he put cologne on his, shul- <laughs> on his shoulder, you know, because he knew they would be together again that, that time. Um, I just feel like when she starts to notice these things about him and she's really cross with the idea that somebody's been helping him with the tux before and now it's kind of her turn, um, that's when she's things start to um, sort of chip away. And she says, bad moments like good ones tend to be grouped together. And when I think of the dress occasion, I also think of the other time when we were not in utter harmony. And she says, I felt we were enemies. So already the the relationship is colored in such a negative way early on. You know, once she's already established um, how much she likes to be with him. And then she has that weird, very erotic dream. And it doesn't portend anything about the two of them necessarily, but but except... Um, you know, they do have a, a particularly, what did she call it? Um, very, very intimate m- moment where the sort of the physical relationship goes to a different level. And, I, you know, I was thinking about that too. Like, what's the difference between that scene and just cuddling in the car? Because she also described that, right? They were sort of really close to each other in the car. For somebody like her, really, what's the difference? I, I know maybe no difference, but I, I, you know, I'm, and I'm still struggling with this, and I, I'm, I don't have a satisfying answer except there's just something so brilliantly raw about this story that captures, you know, I think what this is like for a lot of people, you know, yeah. that. You think it's one thing, and it turns out it's not. And 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 that it, it's just so. Again, I think that you know they live a fairly fabulous life. He's very wealthy lawyer. She's doing well as apparently an announcer, which seems a thinly veiled, you know, <laughs> you know. This, I mean, I'm not reading autobiographic autobiography in this at all. But the voice is so intimate that you can't avoid. And and this is the pure, you know greatness of the story is she's talking so directly to you and she's and it's the gloves are off there's no you know there's no uh uh, uh sugar coating of any aspect of this it just is what it is and and i think it captures a, an ordinary intense physical affair that also is, I mean, it, it seems like they enjoy being with each other for a little while and then it goes south and it goes south because he gives a speech at a moment where this will get us in trouble. So we can't because we're uh, it's public radio. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the middle of, a, let's say, a sexual uh, act, uh, he decides to say to her, I adore you, but I'm not in love with you with my commitments. I don't think I could be in love with anyone. It all started gay and lighthearted. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a funny moment. I mean, 
she looks up at him and she's like, what are you saying? And you're saying this right now, right? And so, you know, it's just like people are just, people are just ridiculous. And I think that this story captures how serious ridiculousness is, is what I think makes it. Because this is, there's nothing even remotely interesting about this affair detail-wise. No. And, Be- and, and, and ripe, like, for utter, you know, 2021 judgments that, that would, in my opinion, miss the boat of the story completely. Yeah. Because he suddenly is like, wait a minute, in that scene, it just occurred to me that uh, possibly you love me. Uh, I adore you, but I'm not in love with you. You know, it's sort of like, uh, he's so, that's a moment where I feel like I'd love to read, I'd love for somebody to write a story from his point of view. (laughs) Um, He's coming at it from a a totally different, um, I don't know, I think he's just coming at this, his his motives are different. But what I find so interesting is right after that part, she talks about the word that they made up. We had searched in our dictionaries for words to convey the specialness of our regard for each other. And this gets to this idea of, you can't even really call it love. What do you call it? He came up with sense, which meant to adore or cover with the perfume of love. It was the most appropriate word, and we used it over and over again. It's ridiculous. And it's it's funny. And and I I, I just think that the story, like a lot of... O'Brien's work is is deceptive if you talk about it on the surface. Yeah. Can I go back to before yeah. I forget, because I know I'll forget. Yeah. When, when he says, congratulations, you're getting your prize today. This is before that uh, scene of, of intimacy, right? Before the, I, I'm not in love with you. Um, he says, congratulations, you're getting your prize today. She says, thank you. I was ashamed of it. It reminded me of being back at school and always coming first in everything and being guilty about this, but not disciplined enough to deliberately hold back. That's a moment of reflection, and there are many in the story, but that's one that I thought moved us out of time to uh, a Martha we have absolutely no idea about, and here's just the thinnest hint of of her and who she really has always been but i mean you lose yourself in these moments and mm-hmm. you become not who you are at all and and i think that she knows that and she's so good that she's willing and i think what made this story probably shocking at the time and and still had hit, hit so hard is even now it feels like even with, you know, so much confessional work or however you want to define it that may have come after this story, it feels like this story is it's so unself-protective, you know, yeah. so refusing. And so much, you know, of what I encounter has this cue to the reader, like, no, I'm actually pretty cool. Don't worry. I mean, my politics are right. I'm, at, you know, I'm, I'm on the right side of things. My characters might be doing this stuff, but but kind of, you know what I'm saying? I do. Like a little bit of an undercurrent of like, don't, you know, yeah. don't worry about me. I get this. <laughs> and I read this and I think like, there's nobody winking. It just is 
it's somebody who you know is making you know like in the parlance of like bad choices or whatever no she i mean right of course she's making bad choices who doesn't and that's what it's it's so powerful about the stories and tracks how we make these you know how we how we uh, you know how we chase things out that we probably you know we're not supposed to and, yeah. and thank god because it's what makes life more interesting i mean but, the the part where she starts to i mean she's depressed but the part where she starts to talk about suicide is the part where i feel like psychologically She's really gone very, very far. And that happens. You know, that that really happens in these sorts of situations where um, there's still a, a level of, of moralizing being done. Now, and I was looking at her at memoir at her memoir called Country Girl. And there's a, uh, a chapter called The Night of Time near the end of the book and she talks about people she's known who tried to commit suicide and there's one in particular that she talks about let me see if I can find it real quick a woman who had lived with her future husband for 10 years and had begun to notice a difference a cooling he was a traveling salesman and she believed and indeed later found proof that he was having an affair in Deauville. So from there, she decides she's going to commit suicide. One day, while he was still away, she decided to drown herself. She was a strong swimmer and swam far out to sea, so far that nobody walking on that shore could have sighted that ash-blonde head bobbing up and down. Out there in that lonely vastness, she lost her will to die and began to turn back. But equally, she lost most of her strength to swim. How she stayed up in that water. How after many hours, she had crawled her way back through it and lay on the shore. She could not tell, but knew that she was found, lying in a wet bathing suit, freezing, and her speech gone. A couple who found her, talked to her, stood her up, tried to get her to walk, and eventually brought her to the hospital where she was put in the psychiatric wing. And it goes on for a little bit more. But what I was thinking about was this idea of, and then she lost her will to die. She lost her will to die and began to turn back in that lonely vastness. And I, you know, I can't help but think about that from Edna O'Brien's book when I'm reading the story and how this character was talking to the plumber and thinking about these outlandish ways to kill herself. And the plumber's like, oh, you're like the third one, and which is also a very unusual part of the story. And to me, the heart of the story. Yeah. <laughs> then I, I won't say anymore. I want to hear what you have to say about no, it. No, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I was waiting for the plumber. <laughs> the plumber is more important than the guy. Oh, my, yes. I, my read of this story is that, it, 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 you know, the plumber's name is Michael. He actually gets a name. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I believe. Yeah, Michael. Michael. Poor Michael. I said, <laughs> I mean, it, I, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't laugh at this, but I, I, I don't believe she's suicidal in this story. I, I, I absolutely believe that the woman who, you, who she described in the memoir is for sure. Um, this woman, if she needs to ask the plumber how to do it, then maybe she's not suicidal. Put it that way, uh, I think. Yeah. You know, and that's what happens in the story. She decides she's going to kill herself. And then she's like, how am I going to do this? The plumber is downstairs who, at this point in the story, we don't have any idea that she has a long-standing and fairly intimate, not intimate in a sexual way or anything, but very, she and the plumber are good friends. Yeah. They talk a lot. <laughs> we don't know that at the beginning. At the beginning, she's like, I'm going to go talk to the plumber about how to, about how to do this, <laughs> which is absurd. It and, is. And, the line, well, of course, when I went downstairs, the plumber took one look at me and said, you could do with a cup of tea. And then th there's no more talk of her actually going through with this at that moment that he, he says, you look like you need a cup of tea. And so then uh, he actually has tea made. So I took it and stood there warming my child-sized hands around the barrel of the brown mug. Suddenly, swiftly, I remembered my lover measuring our hands when we were lying in bed and saying that mine were no bigger than his daughter's. Another one of these uncomfortable lines, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and then, uh, and then I had another and less edifying memories about hands, etc. And then, so, but she's saved by the tea, right? And yes. I just, you know, I go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say yes. Because because you're I agree with you because she even though he says well, you look like you need some tea and she's there and sort of engaged she should be more a little more engaged with the plumber and talking to him she suddenly is like oh I remember this intimate moment about comparing our hands and then the but then the thing about the daughter's hands the daughter getting her hands caught in the um, in the in the in the um, door of the car, the fingers had not been broken but were badly bruised, and he felt awful about it and hoped his daughter would forgive him. Upon being told the story, I bolted off into an anecdote about almost losing my fingers in the door of someone's Jaguar. It was pointless, although a listener might infer from it that I was a boastful and heartless girl. I would have been sorry for any child whose fingers were caught in a motor car door, but at that moment I was trying to recall him to the hidden world of him and me. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, and, and, you know, let's just put it out there. I mean, she's annoying. This is, she's annoying. And, 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 and the lover is kind of ridiculous, too. And, that, and that's, again, why I love these people. But she's annoying because we, we don't like these we don't like this behavior in ourselves. We don't, yeah, we don't want to turn every conversation to ourselves as the focus, and we do that. <laughs> we do. When, we? when she does it, we're like, eh, how obnoxious, right? right? <laughs> right. And that's, that's why, why I love it. <laughs> that's why they're ordinary like us. That's, these people are, you know, and, and, and she in particular, because I really forget about him, ultimately. Yeah. You know, and that's what I think, and and maybe I I, I have a I can I'm I'm, I'm going to posit something, because I I, I want to I'm still asking this question to myself like if I was to explain to people like why this is you know one of the great contemporary stories by anybody writing in English, 
which I think it is, even though I'd said we weren't going to do hyperbole, you know, but there you go. (laughs) Why is it? Because I guess my question still is why, why? And, and, and I have a, I have a, I have a theory. First of all, the scene with the plumber is awesome. And I never would have seen it coming in a thousand years. And it is so great that the, the plumber's like, yeah, you look, you look like, you look, you look like you had a rough night. You need a cup of tea. And then she tells him that, you know, she wants to do away with herself. And then he says, oh, you know, this is, this is an unlucky street. <laughs> I, there's, I got the lady here, the lady here, the lady, three of them. And now you, you know, he doesn't like, he says it so wonderfully matter of factly, but of course this stuff is real. You know, I mean, I, 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 it's weird to say, but there was a house on my, I've written about this, but there's a house on my uh, street that I grew up on um, um, where, you know, there were multiple suicides with different families living in that house, multiple over the course of, you know, three generations of, you know, when people would, somebody else would move in then it would happen again. I mean, this was, you know, and so we, every time I go by that house, even now, I, I think about that you know and sometimes i mean crazy stories like the same rooms and stuff like that and so mm. you know and who knows how much these stories get exaggerated you know whether or not that is really true if it was actually four when it was probably just two but that's the stories we told growing up is oh there's the that's the suicide house mm. and i feel like so michael in the, in the story the plumber is sort of doing that like oh this is an unlucky street you know and then he tells her these these incredibly sad stories. And I just think it's so, it, 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 if, if that scene hadn't been in this story, I don't think we'd be talking about it. Wow. That's my, that's my I'm gonna put that out there. But what makes the story truly great, in addition to that, I think is the ending. Yes. And the ending <laughs> has been on my mind all day and I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. And yeah, yeah. Yes. And I, I feel like if I try and articulate, I'll wreck it. But I do have a, I have been trying. Well, I'm going to say this about the plumber real quick. This is yeah. a guy who interacts with a cross section of humanity. Anybody that has a toilet or a sink or a leak of some kind. Right. I mean, this is a guy who talks to a lot of different people, different kinds of people, and maybe a lot of women i don't know i I don't know why it it struck me that he was talking about women it just seems to me that that's also a statement about not that it's a it's a i want to i want to go back to use your your word a, a sort of an ordinary common thing we are really so much more alike than not and we Anybody who says they can't relate to Martha isn't telling the truth. Right. And I don't right. mean like everybody's just, you know, obsessed in this way and, you know, having affairs with, with a married man. I, I don't mean it like that. I mean, let's assume he's single then. This is really about, I don't want to get into that part of the, of the, the question of Martha. The fact is that, she is obsessed with him. Like, it is this idea of we're, we are more alike her than not. And it doesn't have to be a married man. It's a love object. It's 
I don't want to, you know, take it. I don't want to read Frank O'Connor into this, but I, but I kind of do. It is this like, what is the, what is the conflict? What is the problem here? What is the loss? What are the voids that we're trying to fill in our lives constantly? And the sooner you fill one, another gaping hole opens right next to you and you go to fill that one. And there's another two or three of them on the other side of you. It's and, and can I, sorry, can I just interrupt real yes, quick? Cause yes. I would add the word object in a different sense to go along with your list. What is the object of love? Like, what's the object? What's the, you know what I mean? Like where, what's the, and so I think that the, I I read that into the title too. Well, because, so there was this article about um, Edna O'Brien and the stories, um, including Love Object. And this writer said, writers on addiction have pointed out that a behavior that turns addictive is initially established as a way to escape pain. I wrote that in my notes. Next, obsession feeds on itself and is self-absorbed, but love reaches out beyond the self. Love reaches out beyond the self. This is it. It's like when the kids, when the two sons come and stay with her because the husband can't take care of them and the one has the fever and she's taking care of them, the man comes sort of comes back into her life, right? They're, they're still sort of connected. And she says, I thought of him and my children in the same instant. Their little foibles became his. My children telling me elaborate lies about their sporting feats, his slight puffing when we climb steps and his trying to conceal it. You know, it's, he has morphed into something else. And the idea of obsession feeds on itself and is self-absorbed for most of the story we're seeing her thinking about herself and her reactions to him the lack of attention making up words because he can't say that he loves her and love reaches out beyond the self you know when she's talking to the plumber and she wonders aloud about how cruel is it to contemplate this the word cruel seemed to be ingrained in my head it seemed it screamed at me from every corner of the room, this idea that she could do something like this. What about her children? Well, love reaches out beyond the self. And I think when she's thinking about this man as one of her children, somebody to care about, finally, it's love. It's no longer about her. Obsession feeds on itself and is self-absorbed. All that time was about her feeling good about herself. I'll, I'll buy it. I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but but with the caveat. Okay. That it just, it can never sort of like turn this corner and then suddenly the <laughs> oh, angels yeah. are singing, right? I mean, it, <laughs> no, then no, you no. turn back, you you know, and you go back 18 steps, you know? And, and, yes. and so I, I just, I, I worry, I, I wonder about, seeing this as sort of an evolution uh-huh. in that way. But it, I, 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 the scene with her kids is, you know, but again, these kids are, are going back to boarding school. She barely <laughs> thinks about them. And I think that's going to, she's going to go back to that stance. Yeah. I don't think this character has changed no. much. No, there's except nothing for, to show that. Mm-mm. Except for one, except for, and I, so, but I agree with you. I think that, she steps outside of herself in the com- in this in the scene with the plumber, 
and in the scene with the boys and we get a little bit more of a sense of who, who we're dealing with because because the you know the 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 the, 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 the the guy, the, the love, the lover is sort of out of the picture who bore, who bores, every, who just makes her more boring, I think. As, uh-huh. as a person, not as a char- and character on the page, she's still pretty exciting even then. But I think when, when she goes down and she talks to the plumber, it just, you're right, everything's sort of like, you know, there's another existence. That's what makes the story be, start to become really beautiful. And then I think it takes another turn at the end. Yes, but I also feel I, I agree with you. It does it doesn't just sort of oh she'll get over him everything will be okay you know that that intensity fades or whatever, or you know that letter where he was proclaiming that he actually did love her. You know she sort of clings to that a little bit, but there is that part where she says uh, she she always sort of says and then, and then I hated him, you know she'll she, when she's not having a good day about it she'll say. It, you know, hate was welling up. I wished multitudes of humiliation on him. I even plotted a dinner party that I would attend, having made sure that he was invited and snubbing him throughout. My thoughts teetered between hate and the hope of something final between us, so that I would be certain of his feelings toward me. Um, even as I sat in a bus, an advertisement which caught my eye was immediately related to him. It said, Don't panic. We mend. We adapt. We remodel. It was an advertisement for pearl stringing. I would mend and with a vengeance, right? So she's, she's someday, if she still has her bad days, right? <laughs> so. Right. She still has her bad days. And I think that, that that's why the story, again, I think would be unsatisfying to a, you know, to, I, I come back to this idea, uh, which I seem to be obsessed with today, which is like turning a, a short story, which is such a, an intimate thing, one-on-one between you as a reader and the writer, and you turn that <laughs> loose with a group of, groups are judgmental, and I feel like she wouldn't fare very well in that, in that. and yet, you know, obviously people, I, I think when they, when they read the story in, the, in their, heart, their heart of hearts, would, like you have said, uh, you know, absolutely become her because we are her you know less him again because i don't really care Mm -hmm. i think what i think happens at the end which i find miraculous because it's so unexpected is that the story turns i think this is my reading of you know just yesterday um but the story turns on i think like this idea of yes it ended badly Yes, she even, even for an hour she was suicidal. Yes, he went back to his wife. You know, the story could often it could be told by her. I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that most stories like this, that passionate, somewhat empty love affairs, which are no less passionate for being empty, both physically and otherwise. And who's to say they're so empty? I guess that's part of it. Yes. I think it's part of what she's saying is they're not, you know, I don't think this is entirely physical affair, but I don't have a lot to go on. Cause she didn't tell me that much about the other stuff, but they did, they created this little world and they had some joy. And I think what happens at the end, which again, I think is surprising and unexpected is it becomes a celebration of the little bit that they had 
that even his presence, continued presence on the earth can't touch. Does that make any sense? Yes. Like she, I think this experience becomes something that she can return to. And this is maybe even cheesy, you know? Like she's like, she returns to that little pocket of time with him in her mind, call it a crazy obsession or call it like it was a good time and she can now go back there and enjoy it a little bit and go on with her life. That's how I think of it. Is that crazy? No, it makes a lot of sense to me. But it's like kind of mundane. No, it's but surprising in the same way. No, I mean it's the same time. It's not mundane. I think I think it's the the ordinary. The it's the verisimilitude of it. It's it's that realness that it must be extremely hard to write a story like this. And it's a fiction, but it puts it puts a character out there in an unfavorable light from the outset. And we reach a certain point, or at least I do as a reader, where I have so much sympathy, not empathy. I have, I feel like, oh, I know, right? I mean, when she says, I neither welcomed nor dreaded the thought of, of meeting him from time to time, it would not make any difference to how I felt. Right. That was and how point. how many people can say that? So there's a certain it's just a certain kind of beautiful idea. Yes. In and, that. Just in that. And who has the the ability right to and it's a fiction, but who has Nobody. the ability to say that? That was the Most first time. Don't. Yeah. That was the first time it occurred to me that all my life I had feared imprisonment. The nun's cell, the hospital bed, the places where one faced the self without distraction, without the crutches of other people. But sitting there feeding him white sugar, I thought, I now have entered a cell, and this man cannot know what it is for me to love him the way I do, and I cannot weigh him down with it because he is in another cell, confronted with other difficulties. What I like about that paragraph before, you know, what is to come on the next page is that she can now say she loves him. And they don't have to be having a physical affair. They don't have to be having sex for her to use the word love. And she's saying, he, I'm in a cell because I'm, an, I'm a prisoner of, of this and he can never understand my crime or whatever or my motivation. And he's in his own. And... All of that is unknowable to me, too. And it's free of judgment. And, yes. And, and I think that that, it just shows you, it shows me that you can, you know, that, that you can write a story that it, it, it doesn't need to rely on, on, on again, what other, what, what a lot of people, especially reading this in this day, would might, might have to say about our, you know, our lawyer lover and, and this professional woman who is, again, you know, very, uh, you know, subservient to him and, you know, sits around and cleans the house when he's going to come over and all these things that we, you know, we kind of recoil at. But at the end of the day, I think this story becomes about something, you know, kind of transcendent, if that's not too 
big a word to put on this. And, and, you know, I, I mean, I compare it to, and this is probably uh, too obvious, but you were mentioning stories earlier, Sherwood Anderson. And, and, you know, I would say it's a story that can touch Chekhov's lady with a dog, mm-hmm. pet dog, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense of, I mean, we think of that sort of as a cliche at this point, but then you go and read it and it's not a cliche at all. You know, in, in a sense, it has similarly shallow characters, arguably, but even shallow characters can can be, you know, incredibly surprised. <laughs> we can be surprised by their emotions. And here I feel like this character, you know, wins wins me over at the end by saying, you know, he can't touch, no, nobody can touch me now. Because mm-hmm. all I got to do is kind of think back a little bit. It's nice. I mean, it ends with this sort of weird, bittersweet quality in the last last lines. You know, he, uh, he, ri- he rises before my eyes, his praying hands, his tongue that like to suck. It goes back, you know, she's not, she doesn't shy away uh, ever. His sly eyes, his smile, the veins on his cheeks, the calm voice speaking sense to me. I suppose you wonder why I torment myself like this with the details of his presence, but I need it. I cannot let go of him now because if I did all our happiness and my subsequent pain, I cannot vouch for his. We'll have all been for nothing. And a nothing is a dreadful thing to hold on to. Edna O'Brien is the author of The Love Object. She's an award-winning Irish novelist, memoirist, playwright, poet, and writer of short stories. Much of her work centers on women and their conflicted relationships with men. She is the author of several books, including the 2012 memoir, Country Girl. The essay, Cheever in Albania, is from the memoir and essays, Am I Alone Here? by Peter Orner. He's the author of five other books, including the story collection, Maggie Brown and Others. He holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>